good morning, everybody. If you guys have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 24. I'm going to um, change my Bible back to the Bible I want to read right now. The funny thing about digital Bibles is you can change the version and forget you did so. Anyway, um, it's interesting because at one point, uh, in verse 27 in particular of this chapter, um, if all things go according to my plan, uh, I will share with you something about um, meaning generation again and how, how we uh, arrive at meaning based on the words we use or maybe the way we interpret uh, specific things. So um, what we're going to deal with today in Genesis 24 is, is this story of Abraham looking for or sending for a bride for his son Isaac, which is the promised child, right? Really awesome uh, story that we've spent a lot of time working on. Uh, Dylan did a masterful job last week of pointing us to this really important biblical principle, and that principle is that when we humble ourselves, God exalts, but if we exalt ourselves, God will surely humble us, right? And so uh, it, is, it is an important thing to realize that humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord is really evidenced by people who walk by faith. It's evidenced by people who walk by trusting God, not evidenced by people who get everything right. I wish that was the case, but I'm not that guy. Right? And neither are you, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Anyway, right? And so, um, so we are we're to humble ourselves, and that humbling takes some really weird turns when you look at the Bible. Uh, we start to see strange stories like we're going to see today, which is, hey, go get my son a wife, and we're all sitting here going, how does this work? Right? But... I'm telling you, as I grow in my faith and as I raise four little girls, um, I'm pretty, pretty on board with this arranged marriage concept. Um, I'm just saying, right? I'm going to vet these heathens so many ways to Sunday that they're not going to know what hit them. Well, they'll know it was me, but anyway, so it's, it's just important that, that we do this. So in Genesis 24, it tells the story of Abraham sending his servant, and this is going to be a very important uh, name and figure in this story, but his servant, Eliezer, to find a wife for his son Isaac. And the story is set in the context of this larger Genesis narrative, which tells the story of the patriarchs uh, and the matriarchs of Israel, um, beginning with Abraham. Uh, the series segment that we're in is this reorder and man part of the series of Genesis because, as we know, God created the world in order. We screwed that order up, and the story of Abraham and the story of you and I is a story of God reordering everything, and it's a beautiful reordering, right? Because for some reason, the God who, um, the God who creates the world and watches us destroy it chooses to be merciful and gracious and reorders it using the messed up people that we are. I'm glad of that because otherwise he should just flick me off the planet and see how far I fly, right? So, so the story is set in this reordering. The events of Genesis 24 are thought to have taken place around the 18th century uh, during uh, BCE. 
right, during the time of those patriarchs and was a period of history when people lived in kind of nomadic tribal lives, all of this kind of fun stuff. Sounds appealing to me, honestly, owning camels. Anyway, so Abraham was a significant figure, obviously, in the period, and we've, we've walked him through, the, walked through his story. We're about to transition into the story of Isaac a little bit more and then ultimately Jacob, which is my favorite of the stories in this. Uh, in this in this chapter, though, we're dealing with uh, Abraham sending his servant to go find uh, Isaac a wife. And in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it was the responsibility of a father to do this, right? To arrange the marriage for their son. And it was... Um, it was done for all kinds of reasons, usually because of political uh, alliances or, or uh, monetary issues and things like this. In Abraham's case, it appears that the, the purpose of this is to keep a pure line. Okay, this is why Abraham sends his servant back and says, make sure you don't take a Canaanite. Make sure you take one from my, uh, my father's house or from my people. It's interesting because what this represents or what this presents is cultural differences where basically uh, Isaac is marrying uh, his first cousin or something weird like this, right? So it's kind of strange stories, right? Sounds like in Kentucky. Sorry, Stephens. Anyway, um, woo. <laughs> I don't want to know why there was a woo on that one, but anyway, so <laughs> woo. Anyway, uh, so, so this is where we understand this, or this is where the context of this story leads us to jump in. So let's start in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. I love that uh, picture that Abraham had lived a blessed life. When we talk about somebody who lives by faith, and we walk through Abraham's journey that he's called kind of... Uh, out of nowhere, out of his father's home, and he's called to walk by faith, it seems trying on him. And then you watch his journey, and it seems even more trying. And then you see this promise given to him of having a child, and it's delayed ridiculously long. And you go, wow, has he really had this great life? And, and yet the story is clear. God had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, which we know of from Genesis 15, guys, which is Eliezer, or at least generating meaning. That is what people assume, uh, and you'll see that that name matters here in a bit. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh. That's a strange way to start a conversation. Okay, right? Please place your hand under my thigh. How many of you guys know that in courts of law, well, at least it used to be the case where we put our hand on a Bible, I swear, tell the whole truth, whatever, all this stuff, right? Um, I'm not sure you should trust somebody just because they put their hand on a Bible, because if they're going to lie, they're going to lie. <laughs> Come on, right? Um, so uh, we think that this book is some sort of magic book, but reality is, is that it is an inspired truth that is given to us to, to show meaning or give us meaning in life. But keeping this on your shelf at home won't make the devils go away. Did you know that? It won't. And never opening it 
will surely invite them in, <laughs> right? Because you don't learn from its truth, and that's, that's simply the point, right? And so, so anyway, so just like we would place our hand on our Bible, back then they would do this kind of strange idea where they would place a hand under the thigh, notice that the servant is placing the hand under Abraham's thigh, and he is swearing by the Lord, the God of heaven, verse 3, and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. So the, the, the promise is I'm not going to take a wife that is from, this, from these people. It will be what you ask me to be. The reason for putting it under the thigh is thought to be, uh, again, generating meaning and trying to understand history, is thought to be that uh, to one of two things, uh, maybe both, that the thigh is the strongest muscle, and so the idea was you were placing your hand under there and you were swearing in strength. There was something about that, that promise you were making, kind of the same way we use the Bible. The other one is that thigh can be a, um, can be a, a trade-off word in Hebrew for loins or reproduction. And so in some sense, it may have been symbolic of what this wife was supposed to come and to accomplish, Right? There was going to be more promise, more children, and more family to go on. So we go back. Place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear to the Lord. So he swears to the Lord, verse 4, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me. <laughs> That seems, that seems a legitimate question, right? Suppose she's not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Uh, then Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me saying, to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. So do you notice this big promise that's happening? I want you to notice that there's something interesting about Abraham's theology and something even more impressive about Moses, who is writing this, and the biblical writer's theology, that in some way there's this strange paradox that goes on where there is a promise from God and yet people make decisions. Do you see it? God, is, God has said something is going to happen and yet there's a question. Well, what if she says no? What happens if that's the case? And there's a contingency for it. So it's not like God said, here's the promise. But what if she says no? She won't say no. Don't worry about it. It's not what God says. What if she says no? He says, if she says no, you're free of this oath. Just return, right? That will be the issue. Why I bring that up is because something interesting happens with our generating meaning in the text of Scripture. And we like to read words like... The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. And we get this concept that says that there's some sort of absolute thing going on. And it's not always an absolute. I'm not saying that this is not an absolute. I'm saying that Rebecca was not the absolute. 
I think we do this with love. I think we do this with our relationships. And we pray to God to send us the one. Have you ever heard people pray this? Right? For the one. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what I think about that one anymore. But, but what I will say is this, that there is a lot in the scripture about simply taking somebody to be married to to love them, to honor them, to cherish them, and to live out your life and to accomplish purposes with them. And there's not a lot in the Bible about there being some mysterious one that you find. Okay, so all you young people, please hear me. There is, I don't believe that that is always the case. I do believe it can happen. I believe we see this in Scripture, that there are people that God joins together. But I don't believe it always happens. And this is going to get us into a subject about love here in just a second that I believe will be extremely practical. Because this story, quite honestly, is far from practical. But there are elements of it that can be taken that way. Verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, right? He sent me, and he is going to to provide a wife for my son. And there is going to be an angel that goes before you. Verse 8, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, doesn't make sense. If the angel is going before, isn't it just going to happen? He says, if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this, my oath. Only do not take my son back there, right? Don't come grabbing my son and taking him. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this master, this matter. Verse 10. Then the servant took 10 camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his masters in his hand, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Remember that there's 10 camels in this story. It's just a fascinating thing. Uh, point of the story. Verse 11, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Culturally, this is just something that happens after the chores of the day are done or the normal work requirements have ended. Uh, This is a preparation for either evening meal or potentially even preparation for the day ahead. So he says, O Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master, Abraham. This is interesting because this is the first time in Scripture, we've talked a lot of firsts in Genesis, imagine that, but we've talked a lot of firsts in Genesis, but this is the first time in Scripture where a person explicitly prays for divine guidance the first time in the scripture that uh, that someone prays for divine guidance and this is Abraham's servant okay so he prays for guidance on the matter verse 12 and then verse 13 behold I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water now listen to the specifics here now may it be that the girl to whom I say please let down your jar so that I may drink and who answers drink and I will water your camels also, all ten of them, may she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. So this is his prayer. But I love verse 15. Before he had finished speaking... That's awesome. That's usually what happens with my children. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. 
The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had relations with her. There are a couple of ways to understand that, guys. Sometimes the the term virgin in Scripture uh, would mean that they had not been betrothed to someone. Obviously, virgin means what we know it to mean as well, not having sexual relationships. So there's clarity either way. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your jar. Now, do you notice what is happening here by the servant? Servant is asking God at every turn for him to do what his will would be. But the servant is not asking him to do something and waiting. It's amazing. He doesn't ask God to fulfill something and not travel all these miles to Mesopotamia. He doesn't ask God to give a woman and just wait at the well. He doesn't ask for these things and sit idly by. What he does is he asks, and then he gets active about things. And I think that this is really important with regard to our faith. It was Dallas Willard, I've showed, uh, shared this a million times, but Dallas Willard said that, uh, that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, right? You cannot earn the favor of God. But there is effort involved in the Christian life. There is effort involved in serving God. And we see this in Abraham's servant, okay, in Eleazar. And so he goes and he runs down to this woman, right? Um, She said, then the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar, uh, her jar to her head, to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. Do you know how much water it would take to give to 10 camels after that journey? So do you realize that the person that has just volunteered to do this is like a servant of servants? This is amazing how much she's willing to go. Now, I'm going to connect all of this in a a typological fashion, which is just kind of a a reference from Old Testament to New Testament and how they blend together um, and foreshadowing. But I'm going to to show this in just a second. But what I find fascinating is that the the person that the angel goes before him and is finding, the, the, the woman who makes the choice to commit and follow, the one that God is looking for is a servant. And remember that she is to be the bride in this story. And so this is really important. The bride that God is looking for, hear me, the bride that God is looking for, that's by the way the church, the bride that God is looking for is a servant. He is looking for one who will serve and who will lay down her agenda and her ways for what? For others, for servanthood, for her future husband, for the master. This is really, really important. And it's not a a small, uh, just weird connection here. This is a really important connection. So, verse 21. Meanwhile... Um, she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence. It did say she was beautiful, but I, I'm not sure exactly what is happening. I think he was probably shocked that she was willing to water 10 camels. To know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Okay, so notice this. Eleazar is the one praying. He is specific in his prayer, 
before he's done speaking, God starts answering it, but he doesn't quite know that it's the answer. Isn't that interesting? How many of you feel this way? You're praying, and you're like, I'm asking God, and God does something, and you're like, is that it? Did I? Was, can you do that one more time, right? My dad tells me this story of he and my mom dating, and, and uh, they're, yeah, oh, Lord is right. If you, if you want to hear... If you want to hear hilarious stories, listen to those stories. But anyway, so it tells this story about, like, they were, they were arguing or fighting. Imagine that. Anyway, so, um, and, and he was convinced that she was the right one and all these different things. And he made this, I don't know. He threw down this fleece, he says, which is just loaded dog snot. Anyway, so he, so, so he throws down this fleece and he says, if she is the one, then have her call me right now or something. And she called him on the phone and all of a sudden the, the clouds parted and rainbows showed up, right? You know, all this stuff. So, um, so the one story, yes, there's the one story. Okay, I guess that works, right? I'm not sure what God was doing by making those two the one for each other, but it's awesome. I am grateful for it. Um, I'm grateful for it. So, so, so there's this story and there, or there's this prayer and there's this expectation and then God shows up and then the thought is, is that right? Is that you, Lord? Is, is this what's going on? So he says he wanted to know if he was successful or not. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for a wrist weighing 10 shekels in gold. And she said, I am the right woman. <laughs> anyway, no, <laughs> sorry. Some of you are just too slow on my jokes today. <laughs> okay, and said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Now, what was the confirmation that uh, Eliezer needed to know he was in the right place? Do what? She was serving. That was awesome. He wanted that. But what? It was the lineage. All of a sudden, so she serves, and he goes, is this right? Then she goes, oh, this is Nahor's house. And, she's, and he's like, praise the Lord, right? <laughs> praise the Lord. It is interesting that they understand their history. They understand their story somehow. And this is when he seems convinced about this, whatever that means right okay so again I'm going to get to meaning generation and I'm going to get to love here um, in, a, in a second verse 27 let me back up to that for a second the the new King James translation of the Bible says something very interesting it says he said blessed be the Lord the God of my master Abraham I'm not reading this verbatim but I'll get to the line that it that is different who has not um, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master this line in the NASB says, as for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brother. In the KJV and the, in, uh, the New King James, it says something like, while I was on my way, the Lord led me, okay? Um, 
just a brief note about generating meaning. First of all, that, that isn't a very good translation of the, original, uh, of the original language, but here's what I'm getting at. What pastors do with this, I don't care about your translation that much, uh, what pastors do with this is that they try to jump in and generate all kinds of meaning. They try to say things like, while I was on my way, then the Lord led me. And so what that means is that you need to start on the journey and God will guide you in your steps. And they like to quote passages of Psalms or Proverbs that say, you know, man makes his plan, but God ordains his steps. And, and although that is true, and, and that's fine, right, that, that man does make his plan, I would caution against an idea that says, I'm just going to run full bore ahead, and God will just come in and make my mess better, okay? I caution against it because it is the equivalent of jump and the net will appear, which is not biblical. That's blind faith, and that's not biblical faith, right? The Bible does not tell you to wing it. How many of you know that? Deacons in training, can you raise your hands? How many of you know God says, don't wing it? Okay, I just want you guys to not wing it either, right? Like, we're not winging anything. We're listening to God. And we're doing what he says. Amen? That's what our call is in this life. So there's a strange translation there in verse 27 for the King James and the New King James. And it's just one of those things where you'll hear pastors and you'll hear teachers and you'll hear commentaries try to weigh in on generating meaning out of it. Just be cautious. Just be cautious. You need to look at the whole of Scripture and make sure that that really is a meaning that God would have you generate. Okay, verse 28. Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about all these things. Look at my shiny rings. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran outside to meet uh, to the man at the spring. We're going to run into Laban later in this grand story. Uh, when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist... And when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, This is what the man said to me. Uh, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside, since I have prepared the house and a place for your camels? So the man entered the house. Then Laban unloaded the camels and gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash his feet and feet uh, and the feet of the men who were with him. You notice the hospitality here sounds a lot like Abraham's hospitality towards the Lord several chapters ago. Verse 33, but when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And so what does he do here? And I'm just going to I'm just going to skip over this real quick. He tells his business. I'm Abraham's servant. This is what's supposed to happen. Sarah's bore a son, and I'm to find him uh, not a Canaanite, okay? And so he goes on. He says in verse 39, I said to my master, suppose the woman does not follow me. He said to me, the Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you to make your journey successful. And you will take a wife for my son, for my, from my relatives, and from my father's house. R remember that kind of promise there. Verse 41. Then you will be free from my oath. If this doesn't happen, you'll be free from my oath. If it does happen, that's, you fulfilled it. When you come to my relatives, and if they do not give her to you, 
you will be free from my oath. Now, people look at that and say, ah, it says if they don't give her to you. Hold on. It's all still the choice of people, right? You will be free from my oath. Verse 42. So I came today to the spring and said, O Lord God of my master, and he gave the promise, or he gave his little petition to God, and God fulfilled it, right? Verse 45. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the spring and drew, and I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly lowered the jar, all the story that we've already told, right? And I put these bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So now, if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I may turn to the right or the left. I need to get, get on with my business. Then Laban and Bethuel replied, the matter comes from the Lord. So we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. The servant brought out uh, articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah and also gave precious things to her brother and her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the girls stay with us for a few days, say 10. Afterward, she may go. He said to them, don't mess with me. Don't delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And what do they say? Well, we'll consult with the girl right, and consult her wishes. So it's a really interesting interplay of God doing something and people making choices. Verse 58, then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Have you seen this gold? Anyway, no, that's not what she said. That was my addition. Anyway, okay, yeah, right. Did you see my bracelet? <laughs> I'm on. Okay, Thus, they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. That's, that's the motto I want on my daughter's walls. Okay, right. Then Rebekah arose, arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now, here is where all of these weird pieces come in. First of all, let's talk about the typology first. What is so fascinating about this story is that what we seem to have here is a father sending after a bride for his son. The father sends a man named Eliezer. The name Eliezer can roughly be translated, my God helps, or the helper. What is fascinating about this is that the father sends a helper to get ready a bride for a marriage feast. Is that not beautiful? What is amazing about this is that in all these centuries ago, God was writing the, the blueprint for the story that would be his son looking for a bride, which is you, 
and him sending his spirit, his helper, to come and to prepare us and to guide us, okay? It's fascinating because the, 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 the servant, Eleazar, can, can be compared to the Holy Spirit, but he can also, in an odd way, he can be compared to the original disciples, and I would argue can be compared to you and I, which is a, a group of people that are friends of the bridegroom. That's another understanding of this, of this name, right? And so a friend of the bridegroom, and that's actually what we are in this world. We can be friends of the bridegroom gathering more and more to this banquet, to this wedding feast, which is an amazing thing, right? Why I point that out is that when it comes to reading the Bible, there is a need to generate meaning. There's actually a need within humanity to generate meaning. We are people who need meaning. That's just, it's just part of us, okay? And I'm going to talk about it here briefly. But there is reading the story for its surface story, and you can hear the historical account, and it's wonderful. And you're like, wow, that was really refreshing and cool, and I know how God works, okay? But there's also the bigger piece where God is saying, this represents something, and this represents something, and this represents something. And by the way, you are therefore written into the story. And you're written into the story in, I believe, the better way than preachers often write you into the story. It's not just a here's a little principle to live by, walk like a good human out in the world after you leave church on Sunday. That's wonderful. Stop being losers, right? You should do that out in the world, right? But you're written into the story because you are actually together, collectively, we are the bride of Christ and we are being shaped and molded into this fit bride for a wedding feast that is to come. Now, what I love about that is many things. I love that God is at work within us to shape us and to mold us. I love that God is using you to help me and me to help you. I love all of those pieces. I also love in a culture that is really confused about gender issues that God makes every man in here a bride. Anyway, okay, so we're moving on from that. It's just, it's, it's just funny. I think he has a funny sense of humor. Anyway, okay, so you guys are all like, I hate you, Nathan. So there you go. Take that one, right? Okay, so next thing that I want to talk about is I want to talk about this meaning generation because it's really important to understanding love. Philosophers argue that we are meaning generating beings because we have a unique capacity to assign meaning and to assign significance to the world around us. Unlike animals in some sense, in some sense, we are, uh, philosophers view this as a deeply connected thing to our use of language, like how we generate meaning and how we talk. This ability to generate uh, meaning and in this communication um, are expressed through our feelings. They're, they're expressed through shared experiences with one, other, uh, one another. By engaging, though, in conversation and in dialogue, what we're able to do is we're able to collectively create and construct meaning that gives shape and gives a bit of coherence to life. Now, why does that matter, right? You can look at me and go, I came to church, not philosophy class. Here's why it matters, church. Because we are all striving to figure out what in the world this means. Did you know that? 
But there becomes a time of impasse when instead of collectively coming together to understand and generate meaning in a million different things, we dogmatically say no. It's my way and your meaning is dumb. Right? And how does that make you feel? You're like, well, thank you very much. I guess I'll go sit somewhere else. Right? And so we are a a meaning-generating people, and we need to generate meaning because life must make sense. How many of you know that? Life needs to make sense. You know what happens when your life doesn't make sense? Depression. You know what happens when your life doesn't make sense? You run to things to make it make sense, and sometimes those things are bad things, okay? So instead, what we do is we generate meaning. What we ought to do is back to Dylan's message last week, and that is we ought to humble ourselves and let God exalt us through the generation of meaning, the the generating of meaning that comes from brothers and sisters dwelling together to understand what it is that he's actually trying to teach us. Amen? Every one of us in this room has things right. Every one of us in this room has things wrong. How are we going to know? How are we going to walk in boldness with the things we have right? We're going to talk to each other and we're going to confirm those things and we're going to get a higher level of probability and now it sounds like I'm going into math class. I'm not. But a higher level of probability on ideas and we're going to walk in those with a greater level of confidence. And yet, with the things that don't make sense, the things that we get wrong, we need each other to come in and say, I think you're off on that, right? I I think you, I don't know. Let's talk about it. But when we're off on things, it's really important for us to not point fingers, to scream and yell, to push and shove, but instead go, I don't see it that way. And I would actually like to talk about how we see it correctly, right? And then you begin that conversation, I don't recommend the world's view of things, which is don't talk about politics or religion. I don't recommend sitting silent on things. What I do recommend is humbling ourselves so that dialogue can happen without argument. So the dialogue can happen without death. Amen? Right? This is really important. So this is, uh, to give you an example of this, I told you that I would talk about love. And I, I want you to see that love is one of those things that we generate a lot of meaning for, okay? So uh, when we look at this story, what is our first problem with this story with regard to love? What is our first problem with this story? Where is Rebecca's choice in who she's marrying, right? We go, but wait a second. What if she doesn't love the guy? She doesn't even know him. And then, if this is so crazy, how long of a distance is this journey back? Could you imagine, could you imagine, if she, she's a beautiful lady, right? That's what the Bible says, she's a beautiful lady. She gets all the way back there, and Isaac's like, mm, I don't find her that attractive. <laughs> God's like, die, kid, right? Like, like this, doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. What, I'm, what I want to point out here is the idea that love, love according to your understanding, according to your generation of meaning, love is, and, and marriage and relationships is something, um, some strange combination of attraction, choice, and 
erotic passion. How many of you know that for most of human history, these things did not, these things did not govern marriage, govern people coming together? The concept of marrying for love is actually a modern idea. Now, it does not mean it didn't ever happen. I'm simply telling you that marriage for the purpose of love is relatively new, okay? Marriage was primarily social and economic. As a matter of fact, here's the test, and you guys get to answer. Make sure you get 100% on this one. What was the purpose of this marriage? It was an attraction. What was it? It was a seed. It was a family line thing, right? So that was the choice. It's just a proof for what I'm talking about, okay? So the idea of romantic love is a hard one. But guess what? Today, if you told somebody, let's go to, uh, let's go to a foreign country, and uh, particularly one that does deal with arranged marriages, and you say, um, yeah, we're going to pick the bride for our husband or the husband for our, uh, our daughter, and this is how it's going to be. Your natural reaction is probably going to be like, no, you ain't. Why? Because generating meaning for you is this, love is, and you give a definition of it. But it becomes really dangerous when we start to talk about what true love or what actual love is, what is prohibited, what is not prohibited, and it becomes really hard, okay? Now, the Bible is clear on some things, and you guys know where I stand on many things, but what I'm getting at is we're still generating meaning even with regard to love. One example of love not for, you know, marriage not for love um, is in ancient Greece where uh, the poet... I believe it's Sappho, uh, wrote about the love and affection that existed between um, certain same-sex couples, right? Including the practice of marrying female companions or in private ceremonies. In this, that was a cultural thing, okay? It was a cultural thing. Now, do we say that that is love? Do we say that that is love? I know that this is going to mess with some Christians here, but here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear that I, this is my personal view, and this is a community of people that will push back at me, and I love that in every way. I have no problem believing a person that is attracted to somebody of the same sex says they actually love them. I love my dad. My issue is, I don't think that those people are listening to what God says is right or wrong. But it's not a matter of them saying, I, I love them, and then Christians come along and say, you don't love them, right? You're just perverted. I think they love them. I think many people love many people. I think where they go off, and where we go off at times, is when we forget what God says maybe the rules are, okay? So just... Interesting sidetrack there. Another example of this in a medieval period was um, where uh, courtly love and chivalry romanticized the idea of love between a man and a woman. Knights would pledge their loyalty and their devotion to a noble woman. Uh, and, and they would do this from afar, right? And, and so this was, this was the way this worked. This, these were some of the first occurrences of these ideas. But it's not... Uh, 
It's not common, okay? And I could go through more and more and more, uh, all kinds of things. You could look up a story of Mary Wollstonecraft and, and read up on that. Here's what I want to get to with generating meaning and why the stories of the Bible get confusing and why we have to be okay with some things. C.S. Lewis talks about four loves in this way. He talks about affection being a kind of love as the simplest and most uh, instinctual form of love which we feel free, feel for people who are close to us, right? That could be our family members or our friends. Then there is friendship love, and he's playing off the Greek words. This one would be phileo, friendship love, uh, which is a type of love that's based on shared interests and values. Uh, he has a famous quote about that, which I'm not going to recall right now. Uh, eros would be romantic love, uh, which char- is characterized by strong physical and emotional attraction to another person. And then agape, which is a selfless and unconditional love that seeks the good of others without expecting anything. Listen to me. And especially if you're trying to get in a relationship. You're going to generate meaning for love. You're going to say, I'm opposed to arranged marriages. Fine, it's not your thing. Okay, good. It's not happening in today's world mostly. But you're going to say, here is what love means for me. I need a guy, I need a gal who shows me affection. I need one who's my friend. I need one that I am romantically attracted to. And I need one who is selfless and unconditional in the way they love me. Does that sound good? Sounds awesome. And that would be like the one, okay? But what I am telling you is just like Rebecca, arranged marriage or no arranged marriage, love is a decision that you make whether those things are present or not. And when you say, I love you, what you're responsible for is you being selfless and unconditional in your love. If it is your spouse, it is your responsibility to be attracted to them and care for them and and have strong physical and emotional pulls to them. But listen, I'm talking to a bunch of people who've probably been married for quite a many years, and guess what? That doesn't always stay. Because sometimes there's been hard times in the marriage where that attraction has gone away. But guess what? You can still love them every single day of your life. Especially because you made a decision to love them every single day of your life, right? Friendship. This is a misnomer inside of American romantic relationships. My husband, my wife, they're my best friend. Okay? If you got that, cool for you, right? It's not that common, but that's a generated meaning for people. That's what people want. I want that. And then they're disillusioned when it doesn't happen. Or when you have a marriage where you are expecting affection in the simplest, most basic form. You want them to treat you with warmth and tenderness. How many of you know that men and women treat each other differently? Okay. Sometimes my level of warmth to my daughters, feels very rough. Imagine that, right? It feels very rough. They're like, Dad, I don't need to be put in a headlock today. Yes, you do. I love you. I'm, I love you, right? So we have to make sure that when we talk about this stuff, we're defining these terms based on um, 
meaning that has been generated over time. We need to look at the past. We need to look at the present. We need to ask ourselves if we're way off base, if we're counting things wrong that aren't wrong, if we're not counting some things that are wrong that are wrong, right? We need to understand this differently within husband and wife relationships. We need to make sure we understand this. Everything, everything in Scripture is up for us to understand or to generate meaning from, including what in the world does love mean. But we can quickly take it for granted because, well, of course we know what love means. No, of course we don't know what love means. Amen? Right? The reason why this world is confused about who can love who and what is what and all of these different things is because we've just said it goes without saying what love is. None of the Bible goes without saying, church. None of it. You should study it diligently. You should study it faithfully. You should ask tough questions. And you should be willing to take people's criticism when they think you're way off base. 